Hey, this is Julia from Sunflower Bean, and you're listening to the LSQ Podcast. What's up? It's Jenny LSQ. I appreciate you checking out the LSQ Podcast. In episode 75, I had the pleasure of finally getting to do a long interview with Julia Cumming from the New York City indie rock trio Sunflower Bean. And we've been able to chat before it and know each other socially, but I had always wanted to ask her some of these questions ever since we first met, because she's always impressed me as a really compelling young artist, and, and I love to nerd out on, like, what got you into that shit? So... Julia and I go there. We talk about her early stuff, like before Sunflower Bean. She actually was in a touring band when she was 11 and 12 years old. Uh, And we talk about the music she loved as a kid, like the Beach Boys and Devo and Elliott Smith. Uh, And we also talk about Sunflower Bean's excellent new album, Head Full of Sugar, their third studio LP, and I think their best yet. And it's out this week. It's so good to see you. Good to see you too. This is so cool. I'm so happy we can do this. Same. And it's been a million, a million years, even with a pandemic in the midst of it, since I've seen you. (laughs) (laughs) Are you in Columbus, Ohio, where your next show is? I am absolutely 100% in Columbus, Ohio. It's been quite rainy and cold, but we're at one of these kind of new pseudo fancy to legitimately fancy kind of hotels. Ooh, it's a rising category. <laughs> yes, it really is. And on, on tour, it's a very, you know, you get to feel very special when you go to the pseudo fancy hotel. I like it. How far into this tour are you? Pretty early. Um, we've done three shows so far. So Columbus will be our fourth on this run. And, uh, yeah, it's been cool. It's been really, it's been really interesting. We thought it might be a little bit like riding a bicycle since we had been, you know, we'd spent a lot of years touring and it's definitely a pace that you have to get used to again, but also just the fact that rather than, you know, the the kind of loose creative pandemic days, it's very much like action all the time, which is good. And, and mostly the most interesting and best part is just like being around people again and and music fans again. And I guess I feel a really overwhelming, like feeling of, I don't know, gratitude sounds very LA, but I guess I know it's a lot to go to an event these days. There is a lot of risks, very literal risks that go with going anywhere. So every time I see every single person in there, I know that they not only like the music, but they think it's worth the risk. (laughs) And that gives everything a different flair that has been cool. So when you first step back out on stage, you know, for this group of shows, is there that old familiar feeling? Like, how does your kind of feeling on stage now a days how is it sort of most the same and and most different from when you first started performing with sunflower bean or just in general i feel like i really only started to get what i would call my legs back in pittsburgh at the last show like that was when i really started to be able to enjoy it and enjoy being with the audience i feel really different the band has gone through a lot of changes personally, literally kind of with every 
aspect of ourselves as we all have during the pandemic. We're very, we're all very different people than when it started and trying to remember how to be perceived even on stage after you've had all this time away is has a certain weight to it as well but it is coming back it's definitely coming back in like the little jams and these little moments especially because um Nick and Olive and I have been friends and been playing together for so long there's like little moments that we can have together on stage or where we can anticipate each other's actions and so kind of starting to feel those again is really cool but yeah it's a very pleasurable challenge (laughs) yeah yeah and I mean and I get it too it's like it's hard to process within a few days of being back on tour for the first time like what it because everything must feel sort of removed and disassociative where you're just like, what am I doing? I'm going through the motions ish a little bit, but uh, you you know, you referenced last night's show in Pittsburgh. I guess I'm curious about like the moments when you felt like connected to your power or something like on stage, like when did you first find like what, you know, what you consider to be kind of your power as a performer, you know, like take me back to when you first connected with that. Well, I mean, With Sunflower being, I remember a really particular DIY show, it was probably a very early iteration of like Trans-Pecos or something. And, you know, uh, an amp was blown out. We didn't have the stuff. I mean, we used to just play so much back then. and And I remember the first time I like got on my knees and was like head banging. And the first time that I really like let go into that experience and yeah, I mean, it was literally that it was like the, I remember that show was like the first time that like I screamed on stage, I had been, I did all this stuff. And I was like, it was all kind of clicking. Cause I had come from, I mean, I had been in a band before called super cute, which was a very acoustic Sid Barrett inspired, like art project really. And our shows, we did some cool stuff, I think, but they were hard shows, you know, like Anything that probably would have worked for us, we were like extremely against. No drums, no songs about things that made sense or that people want to hear about. I did an entire European tour when I was a freshman in high school, you know, with a pot and pan as a cowbell, you know, like we were just, we were just really into this, like girls can make art, kids can make art, like you can't tell us anything type of thing, but it it didn't, you know satisfy the rock tastes that had been growing inside me. And then I did solo music for a bit. And then I met Nick and Olive. And that was like, when I was really able to really feel more confident in my playing and like really actually commit and enjoy being a bass player rather than kind of being like a songwriter's bass player and like being with them and practicing with them so much really I think was the basis to give me the confidence to be a stronger live performer because, you know, I just always try to lean on, we try to lean on, lean on ourselves and try to lean on myself. And I know that my bass playing is, and my my singing is what I have. When you talk about the Trans-Picos or wherever it was, kind of this early show and feeling that like truly letting go thing that you're talking about, like, where do you think that comes from, if that makes sense? Well, I think people that make music and do music, write songs and perform songs, I think they're really weird. And I think that 
you sort of develop this relationship with life where you have these experiences and you take in this information and you put it into song form, which is like so natural and also so incredibly structured. And then you take that, you get out in front of people, you you say that thing and you communicate it with them and you kind of get, I don't know, I feel that I kind of over time got very and am very reliant on that process as a way of interacting with the world. You know, it almost makes more sense than talking in a certain way to just be putting that out there. So I don't know where it comes from. I would say a certain strange thing inside all of us people who love music and decide to dedicate our lives to the pursuit of it, no matter where that may take us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wonder if that, that in those moments when you're connected with that, if that feels like it's more you, you know, than you are the rest of the time. Like if it feels good, because it feels like you're like, yeah, this is, this is me. This is me. You know, I'm really drilled down to like me. Well, that's what I struggled with. I think the most in the pandemic and has actually made me think about the work in a way where with a certain different kind of sweetness, I guess, because there's something like incredibly sweet to me about having a wooden instrument that has strings and then, you know, making sounds with your mouth or thinking of thoughts and putting them in this order and putting a melody to them. And it's still so, I mean, I think during the pandemic, I was able to, and we were all able to understand more about, about songwriting and, and being comfortable being songwriters, but I definitely got a new perspective on the sweetness of, of that life. And when it is taken away, it, yeah, it was like a loss of identity, I guess. I felt like I didn't exist really. <laughs> Welcome back, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. How old were you when you first felt like that, that like music was that important to you? I have a really distinct first memory of wanting to be in a band. I was like four years old. I was standing on the playground in front of my house and I just had this like feeling. And I was like, oh my, I was like, I want to be in a band, specifically the Beatles too. Because who, what little girl doesn't want to be in the Beatles too? You know, it's the coolest thing you could do. But my parents are both very, are both real, real music obsessives. You know, they met in a band and they both didn't do music in their careers, but they always kept the love of it alive. And it was just the most important thing, I think, even though it wasn't, but music was always playing. We were always thinking about it and talking about it. And my parents were always talking about songs. And I used to sit in the car with my dad and that's like how I learned to harmonize. I would hear him harmonizing to songs and it just became, I guess, like our way of connecting with each other. Although I really didn't understand while wanting to be in the Beatles too, why all the songs were about girls, you know, like Michelle and all this stuff. And I remember going to my mom and being like, I want to sing some songs about boys, even back then. I don't know. I had this feeling, but I didn't have, no one ever pushed me to do it. I just had this thought in my heart that that was really the coolest and best thing to do. And then I met, or, and I knew Rachel Trachtenberg. My, I met the Trachtenberg family through the anti-folk scene. My dad would play 
base for songwriters that he liked. That was his way of staying connected to being a musician. So he started taking me around to sidewalk and I met Rachel when I was like seven and she was nine and I moved around. I lived in Miami for a brief moment and I came back and Rachel was like, I'm starting a band. And I was like, I'm in. And I didn't play shit. I'd never written a song. I didn't know if I could sing. I had nothing. I just had this feeling. You were seven. So, you know. Well, well, but when we did Super Cute, I was 13. Okay. Yeah, Rachel and I always did like, we did these hardcore lemonade stands. We were just always like thinking about stuff. And I went on my first tour with them when I was 11 years old, selling merchandise. I used to go through the crowd, holding up the CDs, like, and just, I think, really pressuring people and scaring people into just being like, yeah, and they were like, how can we say no to such a small child in this weird bar? But I don't know, you go on tour when you're 11 years old, and it's like hard to come back from that. Like, it's hard to like be back in school. And yeah, and then we did Super Cute when I was 13. We did our first U.S. tour when I was in the eighth grade, Europe with Kate Nash when I was in the ninth grade. We just... Rachel really loved touring and that made me really love touring. And I kind of learned that it was like a way to, I don't know, it's like a nomadic lifestyle. You can kind of escape the reality that everyone else has to abide by because you don't need to, you can't look at mail. You can't do any of this stuff. You're just like going. And when that ended, I did a little bit of my music and then I met Nick and Olive. And I remember meeting Nick outside of a bar and that we both couldn't get into because we were I was probably 17. And he said, I'm starting, I'm starting a band called Sunflower Bean. And I just had a a feeling, I guess similar to like this other feeling. I basically I just do everything <laughs> guided by a particular gut feeling that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And I met him and I was like, oh shit, I'm gonna join that band, aren't I? And I and <laughs> I really did. And it became my life. And but so okay, so going back a little bit to after you're like, I want to be in a band, we're gonna be the Beatles too, and I'm gonna write some songs about boys. And you know, sort of in between there and hanging out in the anti-folk scene, and you know, that has a certain kind of aesthetic to it that's maybe some of where the Sid Barrett thing for super cute that you were talking about earlier kind of feels like it could be an offshoot of being around some of the anti-folk cool weird shit that was going on. But like in between there, like sort of key adolescent years, what was the music that you were getting into? What were the sort of defining kind of albums or artists for you as you were figuring out what your taste in music was? I would say the biggest one who stuck through me in my teens, which is a big one for everyone I know, was was Elliot Smith, who was the first artist that I personally nerded over. My, you know, my dad is a real, you know, head. And it was like the first time I went to Barnes and Noble and like, you know, got my own book about him. And, you know, I would say that was the heart. I kind of always loved bands and was kind of studying how they worked. You know, I loved Led Zeppelin. I loved Black Sabbath, but I also really loved singer songwriters. I loved Simon and Garfunkel, Cat Stevens and these harmonies. And I was going to a public performing arts school and learning about singing, but like, philosophically, I would say probably artists like Devo and the Beach Boys, who are obviously in different spectrums. But I think that those two 
especially Devo taught me about like the power of bands. It really blew my mind, like the ways that I thought you could say something, you know, the way that you dressed, the way that you were unified together, the visuals, the sounds, the thoughts. I just, I guess I saw it as the most complete art that had ever really touched me. And then obviously being a, a, yeah, huge Brian Wilson head, I had a shrine to smile around my room and I had cut out mouths from all these magazines and they were like, my room was covered in mouths and these like little pictures of Brian Wilson that had cut out from magazines. It was like, in retrospect, really strange that anyone let me do that. But, you know, like a lot of records like Smiley Smile, Sunflower, some of the kind of really strange moments I thought also really taught me a lot about how much you can say and how little you can say and what you choose to highlight with your songs in order to make so many unexpected aspects of life so special really and so important like wind chimes by the beach boys was one of my favorite songs for many years it was my number one song for probably like five years just because I just thought everything about it, these little kind of musical poems and soundscapes. The fact that you could do that with songwriting uh, made me love the songs even more. And bands and artists that were able to do that along with just making music that really grabbed you, grabbed every part of you. Those are the kind of things that stuck with me. And even, you know, even anti-folk stuff, Jeff Lewis, Moldy Peaches, Adam Green, Nellie Mackay, all that stuff goes deep. So when did you start to kind of uh, translate or feel like you wanted to translate this admiration for a certain kind of expression into doing it yourself? Like how deep in were you to, to listening to stuff before you were, you, you've said you went to performing arts school, but when did you start to think like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a creator, I'm a creative person, I'm going to write whether poetry or songs or whatever? I mean, I've always for better or for worse, and it's usually worse, have been like a, you know, jump in and see what happens type person, you know, like super cute existed for like a couple days before we had our first show. And that was like having to learn the cover, you know, we did a bunch of covers, we did all this stuff, having to learn how to even, you know, I was playing an instrument on stage without knowing how to play at all. But, you know, it was very much like we were in New York, we were kids, we were tough. We were determined. Me and Rachel had a real synergy. You know, I just kind of loved everything about it. It was really easy to start trying to write songs because it seemed like the natural thing to do. Not that writing them was easy and not that a bunch of them didn't suck, but they were still cool, especially back then. You know, we had a, we had a great song called Salmonella and we have a whole record that never came out due to music industry bullshit but maybe someday it will. So, I, I mean, how has your approach to writing songs kind of grown since then? Or what, you know, what is your current kind of songwriting practice? Well, coming from that kind of ethos and then going into Bean, which I kind of mentioned was really cool. I think because when Bean started, we all had so much to prove, you know, and working with Nick and especially and learning about him and, and really admiring him as a guitarist as well, really opened, just opened up a lot of different thinking and a lot of different ways of working. And since we've been a band, 
we basically, you know, Nick brings things, I bring things. Sometimes they're fully done. Sometimes it could be a sentence, it could be a word. And we, we come together and we figure it out. And we kind of use each other's, you know, especially the things that make us really different as songwriters to create what is Sunflower Bean. And I, you know, and it's definitely that feeling of, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I find it really interesting to bring these ideas and just like see where we can take them. But, you know, like the ways that you find inspiration, I think, are are always the same. And like the practice of writing everything down, recording everything, thinking every thought, following through, you know, that always stays the same. And And there are times when, you know, the muscle is stronger, I think, and times when it's not. But there's a song on on the record called Other Side. And the entirety of that song came to be in probably 30 minutes. The melody, the words, Olive was playing something on the piano and I got the guitar and, and the bass. And then we just, you know, because you have to kind of wait until those emotions are ready. So it's really the same. It's It's always about not standing in your own way, which is one of the hardest things for anyone to do. I, I've, I've found in any aspect of life, it's hard to give yourself the chance to make make something. Yeah. I mean, and a third album is an interesting moment because obviously your debut album is a big deal. And then the second one, everybody's like, ooh, sophomore album, what are you going to do? And then you get past that and it's like, okay, there's like a clearing to kind of be who you are. I wonder what you think, like, what are some of the the 2022 intentions and going forward for Sunflower Bean? Well, you know, I think, again, I also think our kind of spirit and ethos have always are still very true to what they were in the beginning. I think what's changed really is I think we just have a better grasp of how we want to do it. And a lot of that comes from Olive. She really taught herself a lot about engineering over the past few years to even give us that chance to have that level of control. But I think that this record, 2022 Bean, is is really free. And I think that that's something we've always wanted to have with our music. And I think that it's now something that we are actually able to do. Because I think, I don't know, this album is very, it's psychedelic, it's pop, it's rock. It kind of goes all these places, but I really wanted it to have that kind of unplaceable, special feeling that you can't exactly put a finger on, kind of like how I feel about Brian Wilson or Devo, while also wanting it to be really tangible, really the kind of song that you, album that you could really live with for everybody, like, I don't know, people's album, but really the freedom to pursue what we want to do and use our tastes and genres to make Sunflower Bean. And really not not anyone else's idea of what that is. Yeah, it's awesome to be at a place where you can see how by being just who you are, being better at being who you are, makes you a better artist. You know what I mean? The best version of any artist is the one that's the most extreme, you know, the most of them and the least concerned about you know, everything else. And somehow if it's going to be popular, regardless of genre, or if it's going to reach people who don't normally listen to quote unquote, that kind of music, it it does it because of that. It does it because the person like leaned into just the thing that only they can do, even if they don't 
entirely like know, you know, understand what that is or how they're doing it. They just know it when they hear it. Like this sounds like us. Okay, let's let's stick with it if it sounds like us. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've always kind of we've always kind of been interested in like the opposite or what we think might be going on in, in the future or just kind of like, yeah, trying to turn our own process on its head. And I think with the pandemic and with this record, we, you know, kind of did the opposite of what we did with 22 and Blue, which was like this group of songs that were incredibly sacred. And we tried all these things to make that thing. And not that we did not work a ton on this one, but very different. The way that we approached what was working and what wasn't working was very different. It was very much, you know, like what, what is natural, what's important, what's big, what's clear. Like we're trying to work with bigger, bolder thoughts and bringing them to the front in a more succinct way rather than kind of the, you know, I don't know. That was our version of experimentation rather than, you know, kind of the some of the other experimentation you can do, like getting lost in a studio with amps and just stuff that, especially in the pandemic, you were not able to do. It would have also been very fun. But we worked with Jacob Portrait from UMO. We worked with him on 22 and Blue partially as well. And I just, I like that it really became a four-person record. It's really hard to keep that part of independent music sacred these days. I mean, there was like, I, I wrote a little with Susie Shin, Shamir's on the record, but for the most part, every day in and out, this is was a, just a piece by us three and JP just saying, keep going, make this damn thing. And yeah, I think the fact that we got to do it in that way still feels really special. Well, it turned out awesome. I was driving around LA today, pumping it in my vehicle. It's a pumping it in the car type of album. That was definitely one of the goals. I love the videos as well. They kind of remind me of Memento. Remember that movie, Memento? Yeah. <laughs> well, we yeah, we wanted them to. We want. Yeah, we want. It's a them, caper. It's, yeah, we wanted them to be like placed in in reality, you know, like obviously music videos have all this stuff, but we, you know, we wrote the stories as well, as much as a story is in a music video, but trying to use that space to bring something different to the song, especially if you, uh, you know, I cut, you can, I feel like who puts you up to this has a lot more of that personal emotion and roll the dice is really gambling risk. You know, obviously money is a bigger theme and we kind of tried, I mean, money is in both of them, but we tried to kind of flip that around and connect them in, in that way. Yeah. I'm super excited for this record to be out. It's definitely the thing I've worked the hardest on in my life. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like a weird thing to say, but like the amount of love and thought and it's definitely been the, the biggest the biggest endeavor. Yeah. So right life. now you're in that hurry up and come out already moment, probably then where you're just like, Oh God. And I think no matter what, you know, it'll, cause everything goes down to the wire anyway, you know, it'll be, there won't be enough time, <laughs> but all of us could always use to be a little more grateful. And I certainly feel that way about being able to tour, still being able to be a musician, still being able to put out work, work that I'm really excited about and I just can't wait to get it to the people. 
Julia, thank you so much for doing this. Great to see you. And, and I hope we get to uh, hang at a table at a party sometime soon. <laughs> That'd be great. Sunflower Bean's awesome new album, Head Full of Sugar, is out on May 6th, and they've got U.S. dates in May as well. You can check those out over at sunflowerbeanband.com. And thanks again to Julia Cumming for that sweet conversation. And thank you for listening to the LSQ podcast. And if you've got questions or feedback or want to suggest guests for upcoming episodes, I'm on Twitter, at JennyLSQ, and I'm there on Instagram as well. Talk to you next time.